Today we're going to be talking about energy. I think most of it's going to be about oil and natural gas uh, by the first uh, three speakers. Uh, Ms. Molly Williamson, I think most of you know her, a distinguished scholar in residence at uh, NUCASAR, an adjunct scholar at the Middle East Institute, uh, former senior policy advisor to the Secretary of Energy, Depu Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce, Defense, and State, and was acting ambassador to Bahrain, uh, she worked for six presidents, and uh, her career at retirement was career minister, which is the equivalent for you military folks from the academy, I think, of a three-star. Also a great American. And then Steve Gallagher, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's an Eprink Distinguished Fellow. He was the head of Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Africa at the IEA. Uh, Director of International Energy and other aspects in the State Department for 13 years. He was in the Transparency Initiative and is a Georgetown grad, which is good because I also teach there. And then Nick Loris, uh, I think he's going to come at this in a different direction. He's from the Heritage Foundation, the Institute of Economic Freedom. I guess that's uh, something of a nod to the change in the politics of uh, Washington. And I understand you also used to work for the Charles Koch Foundation at one time. So that's a different perspective. And the commentator will be Nat Kern, who, who is the head of uh, the uh, foreign reports. He's been part of this for how many years, Nat? Probably 50 years, 30 years, 20? OK, all right, so you weren't paying attention. Well, I'll start paying attention. So Molly, if uh, you want to start, uh, seven minutes, please, and John Duke, you're going to be keeping the time on this? Yeah, you keep the time. Oh, I'll keep the time. <laughs> so I'm the, I'm the heavy on this. <laughs> Some of these glasses? Yeah, that's Thank you, John. It's wonderful to see you. It's an honor to be invited back. I have a deep respect for all of our colleagues here at the National Council, and uh, what a treat it is to be on this distinguished panel. So I, I'm grateful uh, to, to all of you, and especially to you, John, for including me. Uh, let me just start, because I only have seven minutes, and that means I get to list. I don't really get to uh, provide much in the way of analysis. Let me just start by observing that in the last nine years, the global economy has been in varying degrees of economic recovery. And that volatility of the last nine years has taken us from $147 a barrel of oil in 2008 to $27 a barrel in 2016, in January. And we've had multiple swings uh, in between and throughout and bleak outcomes uh, over, uh, over periods of uh, analysis uh, that have not inspired confidence for anybody. It has been uh, a source of strategic concern, not just economic concern. Uh, it has affected political uh, programs. It has affected uh, development and research. Uh, for all manner of programs, both renewables as well as finding new sources of energy uh, for the uh, competing and growing demands uh, that are a certainty given the planet's uh, population and, um, and development. Uh, what this has meant is that the International Energy Agency, headquartered in Paris, has identified a need for more than $38 trillion 
for the expansion and modernization of global resource production and infrastructure to meet growing demands for ever more energy. It has also identified more than $1.4 trillion of projects shelved due to industry contractions and global economic slowdowns. So if, as we have been asserting for, uh, for the uh, duration of this very important industry, very important uh, range of industries of energy to fuel the planet's needs, the planet could use some calm. How's that going? <laughs> right now, today, the planet consumes more than 98 million barrels of oil every single day. That's a record. Roughly 40% of the daily globally traded oil comes from the Middle East. It must traverse three choke points. They are the Babel Mandeb, the Suez Canal, and the Strait of Hormuz. Essential that this region remain calm and hospitable for commerce when we're talking about 40% of any commodity. But instead of regional calm, we see risks. Risks of further contagion of violence spreading, intra-regional contests, the emergence of ever-heightening tensions not only throughout the region, but between the region and, uh, and its uh, sources and potential sources of, of commerce. We also know that there is a gigantic, not a small word, a gigantic population bubble with more than 50% of this uh, uh, total region, the global, uh, the greater Middle East region, just under uh, 340 million people, more than 50% of them under the age of 25. This means the babies are already born who are going to come into the labor force in the course of the next 10 years, and they are going to need jobs. They needed jobs six and a half years ago on the eve of the unrest. They need jobs now. They'll need jobs 10 years from now. They'll need jobs 20 years from now. What we know is because the babies are already born who are going to enter the labor force, that this region will need to provide 50, 50 million new jobs in the course of the next decade. As a point of comparison, the United States, with a population just under 320 million, was able to produce nine and a half million new jobs in the course of the last 10 years. You see the challenge that this region faces. Uh, this means that there are um, wise leaders, anxious leaders throughout the region looking for ways to diversify their economies in order to offer meaningful employment opportunities to their young people. It means that you have uh, uh, very ambitious goals uh, for things like Vision 2030, for uh, revitalizing, revamping, modernizing uh, education systems, uh, and uh, ways to uh, establish, I'm out of time already and I'm only on factor three, Okay, um, so quickly, non-regional unrest as well. We are looking at the uh, 
um, the marketplace for these uh, very important commodities, the 40% of which are traded globally um, uh, every day coming from the Middle East. This non-regional unrest includes uh, uh, Europe, which is having a backlash uh, over what it perceives as, among other things, uh, migrants coming from uh, the Middle East, seeing provocations and mischief from Moscow uh, in places like the Ukraine um, and, uh, and, and Georgia, uh, further frustrations uh, in Asia, most especially North Korea, uh, frightening pretty much the entire region, if not, if not the entire planet, uh, and threatening major commodity transit routes, uh, sea lanes, uh, and let's not forget the challenge that Iran presents to the region. Greater, uh, different, different factor, I know I'm running out of time already, greater market excitement over the electrification of the transport sector, electric vehicles, as well as greater efficiencies among the traditional hydrocarbon vehicles. Another factor, greater global recognition for environmental responsibility. Uh, the the um, question mark the world has now is, what, what is the United States going to do with respect to the Paris Agreement on its way out or on its way in? You know. Um, and, uh, oh, by the way, Mother Nature. We in the United States have experienced painfully uh, in very short order a host of hurricanes which have uh, destabilized and disrupted our own energy uh, transport systems, our own energy delivery systems. Elsewhere in the world there are also hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and volcanoes. Um, and um, not to, not to um, ignore the very costly, we're looking at maybe three trillion dollars, some are arguing that it's actually much more, uh, needed for modernization and expansion of infrastructure to accommodate our growing uh, energy needs. It's not enough to have markets growing, demanding ever more liquefied natural gas, for example, if they don't have a way of receiving it. There are no receiving terminals, no transportation, whether it's pipelines uh, or, or, um, uh, or, or other means. All of these factors affect both the United States and uh, the, the Middle East. And I say the Middle East, not just the oil producing world of the Middle East, because all of the Middle East is dependent on how well the oil producing um, uh, countries do. Uh, so this means that we together need to uh, make clear each other's uh, priorities, be clear on what our priorities are, be clear that we understand where the others are coming from. This is a difficult time for the region with its spread of violence, its, uh, its uh, fighting the clock to come up with opportunities for their young people and to provide stability for the future. There is also some scratchiness within uh, the uh, Gulf community uh, as well. and. Need I say, the United States is also going through a little bit of a rough patch. So it's all the more important that we reach out to each other to understand each other as we go through 
our uh, very difficult times. Thank you. I'll close there because I know I've overtalked my time already. Mm. Uh, and now we have uh, Steve Gologli, and I think uh, everyone now has 10 instead of seven, okay, to be fair. All right. Um, I'd like to thank the council and particularly John Duke for this opportunity to speak today. Um, I, I want to speak about Saudi Arabia and energy security. I think there's, in today's atmosphere, at least in the U.S., with increased domestic production, seems to be a little less attention to energy security. And I think that's a mistake that policymakers can't afford to make. Um, energy security first jumped into the political consensus in the 70s when following three decades of rapid growth after World War II, energy consumption jumped dramatically, nothing that we've seen in, in recent times. Uh, in 1960, consumption was about 20 million barrels a day. By the mid-70s, it was tripled to about 60. Coupled with a couple supply shocks, uh, that led to much higher prices, uh, and that had some political and economic impacts. But it also had psychological impacts, and there was sense, particularly for the, uh, the post-war generation, it was the first time they felt the fear of limits and they want, responded, their politicians responded with, well, we gotta fix this problem, even though they didn't necessarily understand the problem, and the best way to fix it is make it go away and promise that within a couple election cycles there'd be energy independence, which meant that basically America would be self-sufficient in oil and whatever else energy you'd use. Of course, no one really believed that, but Americans like to be aspirational, look forward to something, even if they're not gonna meet that New Year's resolution. Um, but one of the, th the energy independence, the problem with energy independence is there's, there's really no such thing as energy independence. Even if you are self-sufficient, it's an interdependent global economy. So if the United States produced all the oil it needs, it still would be impacted by a disruption uh, somewhere else in the world or a surge in demand because that would rise prices for everyone and slow down uh, the economy. Um, the, okay, um, the, on, um, as we moved to the 80s, uh, the, from the high prices of the 70s, there were a lot of ups and downs. It was a, it was a pretty uh, rocky decade in many respects. The uh, Iran-Iraq uh, war, uh, the, the, um, the Iranian revolution, the invasion of Afghanistan, um, and the, uh, hyperinflation still continuing. These were challenges that had to be dealt with. Saudi Arabia had already established itself clearly as the preeminent world oil supplier and producer, and it stepped more into that leadership role of trying to balance the market so there wouldn't be too much volatility going down, which, oddly enough, it benefits producers, but it also benefits energy security in the long run because it doesn't add too much distortions that rebound later. And it also tried to tone down prices going up. Of course, in the 80s, that wasn't a problem. We moved into the, um, and at that, we moved into the 90s, and that started out with low prices, but quickly, uh, uh, that, that started out with low prices, but then we had the uh, Gulf War, and there were ups and downs through that decade, and it had to be balanced in the market. Fortunately uh, for Saudi Arabia, beyond great endowment of oil, they had great leadership. I, I'd say that was fortunate for us. Uh, uh, their Minister of Oil for 20, over 20 years, and very difficult 20 years, uh, Ali Al-Naimi, uh, was extraordinary. And, and it guided 
difficult times and basically, as some people refer to, he was like the, the Fed chair of the oil market. Um, and also, Aramco, he was head of Aramco for a dozen years before that, and Aramco is also a modeled state oil company, in the, um, often equated to Statoil of Norway. So then, as the 90s ended, um, prices were relative, we starting to come, were down and low, and people were looking forward to a quiet new millennium. But the first 15 years of this century were marked by a lot of developments, ups and downs, uh, another Iraq war, uh, a coup in Venezuela attempt, a strike in Venezuela, ac actions in Nigeria. They, they just kept coming. And particularly in the period 2003 to 2008, it really looked like the market was going to be was out of control. And uh, I think if we didn't have Saudi Arabia at the time reassuring the market, taking the leadership, um, who, uh, it would, oil would have been the factor disrupting the global economy. We know it turned out to be something else. But it hung in there, and we finally made it through. But still, the rest since then, it has been continued a number of, uh, what I would say, uh, interesting developments, surprising developments, constant changes. All the predictions in the past, if you look back, have tended to be proven wrong as you move forward. Um, then now, in the last few years, and I think Molly reinforced the need for uh, the importance of Saudi Arabia and energy security. In the last few years, I think, at least from an American and a consumer point of view, things seem to have calmed down a bit with the resurgence in U.S. oil and gas production and a lot of advances on new and renewables. I think this is a moment, but we've had these moments before. Uh, tough times are going to come, and Molly listed a number of the reasons why these things are likely, and even the things that are likely, I worry about the things that aren't on anyone's list that we've never thought of, and that's what's really hit us in the past. So there are going to be bumps in the road going forward, and oil is still important. People are talking about peak oil demand. Well, oil, uh, according to EIA reference case, 2040 will have gone up 20% consumption, global consumption to 113 million barrels from what it was in 2015, and will continue to grow at least through 2050. That's as far as they give numbers. And it's going to be around for, it's going to be, a, and still be the number one L, uh, energy source in our, the global fuel mix. So we cannot let up uh, on energy security. And a big part uh, of energy security is, do, is keeping the pressure on the all of the above, the new and renewables, the uh, developing, op, re, reducing barriers to sustainable energy production and trade. And, and but what's very important is a continued strong dialogue with major producers and consumers, and that is especially Saudi Arabia. We have a strong dialogue, and we need to continue that, and we need to know that even whatever progress we make domestically, we, we can never become an energy island, and our future economic growth and our future energy security depends on close ties, particularly with a country like Saudi Arabia that has for three decades or more taken a long-term enlightened view to the oil market and served as a buffer in times when uh, demand when oil was needed and also have that spare capacity to reduce production to smooth out the curves in the oil market. And so my recommendation is that we continue that message and not forget that where we would have been without Saudi Arabia and we will be in the future if we don't stick with 
stick with that strong dialogue and also policies like having a strong strategic petroleum reserve and emergency preparedness plans with our uh, consumer allies. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you here today. Um, I'm also honored and thank the council for inviting me. For those of you who don't know the Heritage Foundation, we are a free market think tank uh, whose primary audience is Capitol Hill, where we promote policy ideas that, with the hopes of turning them into legislation uh, in ways uh, with regard to the energy sector that liberalize markets. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time today just talking about where our policy objectives are to capitalize on America's energy abundance to uh, increase that integration uh, with global economies uh, so we can be a supplier, so we can be an importer uh, in ways that make sense for uh, domestic producers, for farm producers that ultimately benefit the consumer and protect the taxpayer. The big focus for us is access. Uh, if you look at why the United States has been a global oil and gas producer, much of that production is occurring on state and privately owned lands. Uh, fortunately for the United States, a lot of the shale deposits are on state and privately owned lands. But if you look at federal lands off America's coasts, uh, where a large majority of our domestic resources are off limits to production, uh, it's just stagnant. Uh, and so what we want to see from Secretary Zinke and the Department of Interior, uh, what the president has talked about with regard to energy dominance uh, is really capitalizing and providing an opportunity to develop those resources if a commercial interest exists. Uh, really getting that time frame down when it comes to having a sensible environmental review process that doesn't hold up these projects uh, in the courts or in lengthy environmental review processes with multiple agencies weighing in and, and not having a lead agency reducing the application for permits to drill on federal lands. Uh, if you look at the APD on federal lands compared to uh, state and privately owned lands, states will conduct an APD in, in days, if not weeks. The federal government will do it in months, if not years. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, we'd like to devolve a lot of those responsibilities down to the states uh, if we can. Uh, that will take an act of Congress. but. If the administration is committed to ensuring that we have access to these markets, uh, that will be a step in the right direction. Uh, access to uh, global markets and ac access to exports. We were very happy that the crude oil ban was finally lifted a few years ago. We'd like to see more liberalized access to LNG markets. I think the fact that the, our Department of Energy has to weigh in on a project based on national interests uh, as to whether or not we should be able to export natural gas uh, really makes no sense. Uh, they have to go through a separate process if we don't have a free trade agreement uh, with the recipient country. Uh, natural gas should be treated like any other good that we trade regularly around the world. Uh, it, it shouldn't make any difference uh, if we have a trade agreement or a non-trade agreement, so long as it doesn't threaten national security, uh, which it wouldn't. In fact, it would improve national security by increasing access, increasing choice, it would make countries uh, less dependent on any one supplier. Uh, that's the importance of an integrated energy market. Access to coal exports, access to technology transfer. I think one 
really important prospect the United States has is our Department of Energy National Labs. And they do, uh, they have a, a fantastic amount of basic R&D. How do we allow innovators working at the labs to push those technologies out to the marketplace? Uh, how do we allow the private sector, whether it's a domestic company, whether it's a foreign company, to see what's going on in the <laughs> national labs, uh, to see if there's commercial opportunities, because these lab operators, they're scientists. They're not necessarily thinking like entrepreneurs all the time. Uh, and they do good work in tech transfer already and, and getting patents, but they could be doing so much more. Uh, and so how do we liberalize our national labs in ways that can spur innovation uh, in conventional fuel technology, in nuclear energy technology, and in renewables? I think there's a, a big opportunity there. Uh, with regard to nuclear, Again, we have an antiquated regulatory system that stifles innovation and competition. Uh, you know, people have been saying with cheap natural gas that nuclear is dead. Uh, it, it might be, it might not be. I don't think we've really had an opportunity to see what nuclear energy can do in the United States because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is geared towards licensing and permitting large light water reactors uh, and really are casting the innovative small modular reactors off to the side. And so if we can have a separate a new permitting process uh, done by the NRC uh, that allows for the permitting and licensing of new technologies, you might actually see some competition within the nuclear sector and spur even more innovation there. Looking at the regulatory regime, this has been something that President Trump has been adamant about, uh, not rolling back regulations to a point where we're going to see environmental degradation, uh, but looking at what regulations have increasingly high compliance costs and diminishing marginal environmental returns uh, almost to a vanishing point. I think because the way that our Clean Air Act uh, is set up, where the agency is required to look at emission standards every five years or so, uh, they don't necessarily look at the outcomes in ways where the direct benefits uh, outweigh the compliance costs of these regulations. So uh, when the Trump administration uh, is talking about rolling back regulations, whether it's the Clean Power Plan or the new source performance standards for power plants that would effectively ban the construction of new coal-fired power plants. Uh, I don't see a way in where we're going to somehow end up like China. Uh, you know, that's not where our air quality is going. It's about making sure we have sensible regulations uh, that are outcome-based. And lastly, looking at energy subsidies. Uh, this has been a big push for the Heritage Foundation is eliminating energy subsidies for all sources and technologies uh, uh, for a few reasons. One, there's a huge market demand already out there for energy. Uh, we don't need to subsidize it in ways where you're either promoting the development of politically preferred technologies that can't stand on their own two feet, uh, or you're subsidizing very wealthy companies that don't need the taxpayer support. If there's innovative, good ideas out there, we should be looking at what regulatory barriers we can break down in ways that spurs innovation and competition in the energy marketplace, not creates a dependence on the federal government. And I see energy, energy subsidies as a way and a, and a big problem in terms of stifling energy innovation, because not only does it shift public finance to these projects, but it also shifts a lot of private finance to these projects. If you look at the companies that failed, something like Solyndra, where we lost $500 million of the taxpayer money, a uh, billion dollars also was lost from private investors. And there's a huge opportunity cost there where private investors are shifting their money to what are politically anointed projects rather than necessarily looking at 
what is the proper risk and reward in the marketplace for having some type of investment that actually meets the consumer's energy needs. And so having this opportunity for open access, reducing the regulatory burden, uh, and really peeling back subsidies uh, in all shapes and forms. You've got targeted tax credits, loan guarantees, outright mandates to blend ethanol into our fuel supply. Uh, you've got liability insurance. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that the federal government distorts energy markets, uh, and we'd like to see uh, Congress working with the administration uh, to reduce all of those subsidies. Thank you, and I look forward to the questions. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and not talk about oil and gas, even though most of you are used to me talking about oil and gas markets, particularly LNG, if you've been to these in the past. I'm going to talk about the rebuilding of Libya, Syria, and Yemen with renewable energy, microgrids, and energy storage. I know for some of you that sounds rather different, but I assure you, I've been in the energy business since I was at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in 1986. So I think I may know a little bit of what, what I'm talking about here. And it's a changing world. The time for microgrids is now. This is the future. And the price of solar production in places like Libya, Syria, and Yemen are dropping by the moment. Globally, over the last couple of years, it's been almost 85% in some places. Of course, you have to pick where you're going to put the solar panels. But there's a political element to this, too. It is paramount that Libya, Syria, and Yemen be rebuilt very quickly after the guns go silent. There are many studies that have shown that ethnic and tribal wars can return rather rapidly after the initial peace is made. If there is no rebuilding of hope, no rebuilding of the relevant economy, and the rebuilding of the relevant society, then it will collapse again. It will become violent again. Now notice my optimism. I'm assuming that there will be peace in these three countries. I just don't know when. Inshallah, it'll be soon. And this is what we have to do quickly. We have to get it moving quickly. Energy is a big part of this rebuilding. One can even judge the level of development of a country by the sort of energy that it uses and what it uses for. It's an enabler for health improvements, education, transport, communications, governance, finance, investment, water, food systems. Lights are needed for basic education. And also in these countries, air conditioning would help. It's very difficult to study in the Libyan desert in the middle of August when you're a kid and there's no air conditioning. That requires energy. Energy is needed to cool medicines and to keep them effective and safe. If anyone's been with someone who's older and has the entire fridge full of medicines, it needs to be cooled all the time or they're ineffective. It's needed to store and preserve food and drinks. This makes them safer. Communications, especially long-term <coughs> communications, absolutely required. ATMs, bank transfers, petrol station pumps. All of this stuff doesn't work without energy, and now you're getting a sense of what it's like to be in these three countries. At the same time, a lot of water is needed to make sure energy systems work, most particularly if they are traditional thermal generation, which unfortunately these countries will likely fall back into. Water-short countries like Yemen and Syria in particular should put more thought 
into less water using energy technologies and the typical thermal plant is a water guzzler for cooling that plant. In this country, it's the number one use of fresh water. Not irrigation, it's cooling electric plants. Syria's nightmare was in part brought about by a drought in the Northeast. Why put a thermal plant in a place that can have drought? Yemen's capital, Sana'a, will have to move because its water table is dropping by meters every single year. Climate change is expected to have massive water and energy impacts on this region and in particular these countries and Egypt. Libya has a massive water reserve underground called the Nubian Great Nubian Sandstone Aquifer, but this is non-replenishable in its fossil water. For all three countries, renewable water thrifty technologies would be best, especially those areas away from the sea and even near rivers, you can't rely on the river flows of the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's in been, it has been in decline over the last few decades anyway, and there are a lot of demands from the north. These people in these countries have lived too far and too long in fear, desperation, and literally in the dark. Energy is the critical infrastructure of any nation to rebuild both the hard and soft infrastructure of those countries, the economy, and the society. Also, energy systems are systems within systems connected with other systems, nested in other systems. But if you have microgrids that aren't connected with pipelines and other sort of uh, what I would call extraneous and targetable infrastructure, you're more secure. Nexus thinking is required here. If we're just thinking about electricity, we're going to miss the point. Also, if you're going to be building microgrids, people will get jobs. They will get skills. They will get education. And if you have companies like one represented by the gentleman right over here, uh, Shihab Karan, doing work in the Middle East, there should be offsets. You should be hiring some of the people in these countries and train them. I, I know you know that. And that's part of the whole thing here. Get them educated. Start an education program for renewables. Educate people on energy. More effort has to be done on demand management as well. So what I propose is a significant part of the rebuilding of these countries be based on microgrids connected to but disconnectable from larger grids and that the energy sources be mostly renewables. For the oil people in the room, that causes a little nervousness. But the future for rebuilding in unstable places where there is conflict will be in renewables and microgrids. Let's not make the same mistake we made in Iraq and so many other countries. For example, the pylons, that uh, long-distance electricity pylons, the 200, 300, 500,000 uh, volt pylons. In Iraq, they used to be blown up five minutes after we put them up again. With microgrids, you don't have that problem. Also, it's more protected from cyber issues. If these are separated out, not connected with the computer systems throughout the country or the world, the general centrally commanded electricity system is cyber vulnerable. The most cyber attacks in this country of any industry are in the electricity industry. And if you're in a country that just went through ethnic warfare and tribal warfare, there are going to be people who are up to speed on cyber stuff. 
This could be a huge buy-in by the population. Imagine all of these poor folks that have been unemployed for so long in these three countries building a solar panel, setting up constituents for the microgrids, actually feeling like there's hope for their country. But all of these have to be standardized. Mobility, flexibility, and replicability are absolutely required so they can be done across the country like a Lego puzzle. You just keep on adding when the demand goes up. But don't make it connected like it has been in the past. Another thing is corruption is more difficult when you have microgrids. The big money's not there. You're just taking little money. The big men will look somewhere else to steal money. This is something that could look also at what terrorists could do to the electricity system. And this will continue. Damage per attack is much less when it's a microgrid. And also, it's more rebuildable when it's a renewable energy. You blow up a large oil generating plant, and you're out of action for the next few months. You blow up an oil or a gas pumping station, oil and gas people, you know this. You're out of luck for a very long time. You blow up a mini nuke, which our Secretary of Energy is recommending for Syria, and you not only have the problems of, well, nuclear stuff underground. Do I have to say much more? I, I consider that one of the most absurd propositions about the rebuilding of these countries ever. But absurdity has become the norm in this city, so I won't repeat the others. Uh, jobs can be produced from this, training can be produced from this, hope can be produced from this, and this is not rocket science. This is simply getting their countries and their people back on their feet with renewable and clean energy. Doing well by doing good. Doing well by doing good. You know, it could be U.S.-Arab relations will be much improved if instead of bombing the Arabs, we help them rebuild. How's that for a concept? Thank you. All right, now we'll go into the question and answer session. Maybe I'll bring them up here and read them off, and uh, you can take these things on as uh, you think appropriate. All right, another one. So we have about three hours of questions. Uh, wow. Okay. And this is, I guess, to everyone. Uh, what are your forecasts for the future of the Iran deal? Saudis in the room begin grimacing. And how will it change power dynamics for energy exporting states in the Gulf? Oh, I'm sorry. Nat, you should be saying your end of uh, the, the bit. You want me to moderate? Yeah, you can moderate. Yeah, why don't you do that? Yeah. You want me to stand up? Yeah, I think you should, yes. And, and, uh, yeah. and comment. Uh, and yes, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Excuse me, Nat. I don't know. After following, uh, after following all these visionary views, uh, I don't know how to moderate between them. <laughs> um, but what I thought I'd do is just uh, go over something real quick. Uh, we're all familiar with the fact that U.S. oil production has grown, and in theory that reduces our dependence on imports, right? Um, I looked up some of the numbers. U.S. oil production has grown by 3.8 million barrels a day since 2012. U.S. exports of crude oil, oil products, 
plus propane have gone up by much more, by 4.3 million barrels a day. Um, our imports are down uh, a tiny bit, maybe 10 percent, since 2012, imports of crude oil. Uh, but our imports of crude oil from the Arabian Gulf are up from 18 percent to 22 percent. What's happening is simply pretty simple. Um, we've got a very robust, well-equipped refining industry in the United States can handle any kind of oil, and it pays for them to import cheaper oil that is cheaper because of its sulfur content or gravity. And it pays uh, for U.S. producers to export their oil uh, to other regions uh, where their refineries are less capable of transforming it into useful products. Um, so as we've, 40 years after the Arab oil embargo, a lot of people are uh, very satisfied that we've reduced dependence on foreign oil. But in fact, uh, the way the free market works, uh, we're still using a lot of foreign oil for good purpose. We make money. We turn it into light products and sell it to people, who, particularly in South America, where they have difficulty uh, refining it into the products they need. Uh, so this is sort of the free market at work, as opposed to the concept of autarky, where, oh God, we don't want to depend on anybody. The free market has imposed an interdependence, a growing interdependence, between the U.S. oil industry, including the refining and production, uh, and the rest of the world which I think is darn good. Uh, the kind of example that I explain to young kids is uh, it's good. The United States is the largest exporter of raw cotton in the world. We're the largest importer of finished cotton goods. What's wrong with that? There are people in Malaysia or wherever they sew up our cotton and return it to us as t-shirts or the shirt I'm wearing. Perfectly good. It's a good use of their labor, our efficient agriculture, and it trades back and forth. So it would be a shame to try and end our dependence on imported cotton goods. Uh, it'd be idiotic. So I think as we look out at some of these questions, we're watching a free market, very sophisticated free market working and creating greater interdependence, particularly with Saudi Arabia and the imports from the Gulf um, and the U.S. industry. And I think that's a, a darn positive outcome. That's me. Oh, oh thank you. Uh, again, sorry about that. Sometimes I'm an absent-minded professor, but that uh, we've worked out. All right, so we have uh, some questions. Uh, back to the Iran deal. Does anyone want to handle the Iran deal and what this might do for oil markets? Anyone? I'll take, take a stab at that. Want me to take a stab at that? Yeah. Uh, my impression is that uh, at the end of the day, you're probably going to have some revision to the U.S. law uh, between Corker and uh, some of the Democrats who opposed the agreement in 15, mm -hmm. uh, but the revisions won't have any effect until 2025. It won't have any effect whatsoever 
if Iran is true to its word that it never wants a nuclear weapon. Now, in between that, uh, I can't predict uh, what the president may do if he doesn't like whatever compromise comes out. But I don't see this as a big issue. Well, the IEA said they are uh, uh, working with the deal, so I'm not sure how that contradiction is going to work out. Uh, and I'm also not convinced that Iran doesn't want a nuclear bomb, but that's a totally different situation. Uh, but if it goes into conflict uh, and the Shia-Sunni thing goes off the ground like we are really worried about, this could be a bit messier. Uh, anyone else on this one? No? All right. Uh, we have one on global warming here. What role does or will climate change play in shifting the energy dynamic between the U.S. and the Arab world? Anyone? I'll have one comment yeah. to throw out. Uh, Two-thirds of the electric cars sold in the world last year were sold in China. Mm -hmm. China makes two-thirds of its electricity from coal. How's that helping? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that can be problematic, but the Chinese are also moving toward renewables, and they've absolutely toasted us in renewables. They're way ahead of us on this thing. And they do realize that coal in China is problematic, and they have an $85 billion medical pill, bill every year because of uh, the environmental impacts of the coal industry. Uh, the Chinese leadership are not dumb on this one, but it's going to take them time to, to move forward. Uh, what are the implications of the uh, diminishing oil reserve in the Middle East and world in general? I don't think they're diminishing. It's one of these things where you uh, don't know until you know. Matt, do you have a comment on that? Uh, as you produce oil, you will reduce your reserves, mostly. But I'd say uh, half the world, at least, thinks that uh, demand will have peaked before supply has peaked, uh, whether well, that's true or not, but it's not something people are worried about terribly much. Yeah. Nick, you have a comment? No. no? I was actually going to comment on the global warming one. Oh, okay. I, can. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it'll have much impact uh, other than kind of the status quo is the way I see it. I, I think a lot of people made a big deal about Paris, uh, I, but if you look at Paris, there's no legal obligation to make commitments. A lot of the developing countries kind of you perpetuate the status quo. Uh, when it comes to coal-fired power plants, there's 1,600 coal-fired power plants being built around the world. Uh, I do think we need to address uh, the real environmental, the, the near-term environmental problems that China is facing that don't have anything to do with CO2, uh, but the black soot and the carbon that is emitted from uh, coal-fired power plants. You know, that's a pressing issue. Uh, solving energy poverty is a pressing issue, and I don't think these developing countries necessarily <coughs> going to care uh, all that much where they get their energy from as long as it's affordable, reliable, uh, and uh, robust. Uh, I think it's going to be a combination of factors. Certainly renewables are going to continue to penetrate the market, but I think we should be looking at an all-of-the-above approach uh, that ensures we eradicate energy poverty uh, before anything else. I'm surprised at the all of the above. That was an Obama viewpoint. That was subsidize all of the above. We, oh, we I want see. the oh, market to determine. That is the different. Above. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the microgrids I talked about are uh, <laughs> the the place that uses the moats are in Alaska mm -hmm. and in islands, uh, Caribbean, also South Pacific. So uh, this is a really tough one. Do you have any comments on the ones that? 
would just add that uh, it was a Saudi oil minister uh, several decades ago who observed that the planet didn't come out of the Stone Age because we ran out of rock. Uh, the technologies are, are bringing along not only uh, conventional hydrocarbons, unconventional hydrocarbons, but uh, being extremely innovative and contributing to the world of renewables and alternatives. I, I, would, I, would, agree on the, the re, I would agree on the resources under the, ground, uh, under the ground. I think the risks to oil in the future, why we have to be careful, are above ground, not below ground. Right. Well, the political risks, the uh, yes. ethnic tensions, yeah. religious tensions. But also, one thing that I tell my students both at Georgetown and NDU is you don't know until you know. <laughs> a few years ago, we thought that uh, we'd be running out of oil, and the big discussion was peak oil. Mm -hmm. And then there was a new techno uh, technology that was pushed by one of the most uh, impressive people in the industry for many years, George Mitchell. He was uh, a poor student at uh, Texas and AMM, not having money with full scholarship, but he was just bullish about this. I met his granddaughter in Ditchley, England, three years ago, and she's sitting on a $5 billion trust fund. From a poor student at Texas A&M in the full scholarship to a $5 billion trust fund. Now that's America, all right? That's also the oil industry. You don't know until you know. How much do we know is actually in the ground in the US? We have not a clue. How about deep water offshore? We haven't a clue. We probably have enough oil in the world that we could burn this stuff for the next 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, depending on the price. Price goes up, reserves go up. Technology change, reserves go up. It's a complicated picture. Uh, but speaking of a complicated picture, how should the United States <clears throat> respond to the tensions rising around oil in the context of the Kurdistan region? Anyone? Steve? Well, I, I, th I think that's a consequence of, of uh, choices made in the past that o open up uh, a Pandora's box. I, I think it's something, it's, I don't think there's any one simple solution, but it has to be handled very, very carefully, and it's gonna be uh, difficult. This was one, a, a problem that was seen right from the beginning of the, uh, uh, of the Iraq war. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going away soon, but it has to be handled very, very delicately mm. uh, and in the long term to try to find a mutual a solution that can work. Uh, the original Constitution almost was contradictory about oil, had mm. two different articles that contradicted each other. So there's some questions about the oil uh, and, and, and transit rights, but I think <coughs> a functional the, the best solution is a functional central state, effective state in Baghdad. Uh, that it's easy to hold a nation together when you have uh, an effective government that it's the alternative. And so we have to keep pushing for, for an effective government in, in, uh, in Baghdad. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Constitution. I was part of the negotiation for the oil context of the Constitution with PILPG. And we had all the groups in one room, and we could not get anyone to agree on anything after a six-month period, which was an interesting moment for all of us. And it is very vague. It still remains vague. But also, my guess with the Kurds, they left a little too quickly. I have a feeling this is a setup. 
The Kurds don't back down like they've done in the last few days, easily. <coughs> They're coming back. It's a matter of time. Peshmerga means fight to death. Fight to death soldiers leave when they know they can't win, and they come back. Mark my words on this one, folks. Molly? No comment? Uh, what about talking about domestic consumption by the oil-producing states and how that may affect exports in the future? Anyone? Well, yeah. I, I think that's, it. that's an important to follow for other consuming countries that that will limit their exports. I think there is, will be more of a push towards move towards market incentives, energy efficiency, and renewables. But if they kept on the same path, the major consumers in the Middle East, which have now moved into the top five or six consumers in the world, in many cases were, uh, then, because we have to think of the countries in the Gulf as consuming countries, not just producing countries. And I think that if they make the shift, the problem is some of the subsidies, but there's some innovative plans for getting rid of the subsidies. Um, yeah, well, this, the Emiratis are getting rid of their subsidies. They've been doing that uh, over the last few years. The Saudis with 2030 are looking ready to get rid of their subsidies. But Saudi Arabia has an interesting energy water issue. They're using about 3.5 million barrels to 4 million barrels a day to produce fresh water. If they continue along this trend by 2050, they won't be exporting oil. So this is a huge difference. And the, the water future. is uh, heavily subsidized. Yeah, and the water is subsidized, the oil is subsidized, the food is subsidized, and there you go. Nat, do you have any comment in this? A um, couple things. They, sure. They did some price increases on yeah. consumer petroleum products, uh, like gasoline, and that uh, demand is pretty flat. Uh, demand for diesel has been declining because of uh, low economic activity. Uh, they're burning more fuel oil in the western province in lieu of crude oil. But uh, they've made quite a bit of progress in reducing the use of uh, oil or oil products to make electricity and shifting more to the gas that they've been able to develop. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they look to uh, imports of LNG, because that's cheaper than fuel oil now, uh, even from the U.S. So they've, they've got quite a bit of uh, room to reduce their use of uh, petroleum. Well, even on the waterfront, they're turning toward uh, CSP, concentrated solar, and, and other potential yeah, I don't know ways. where you get the number of three and a half million barrels. Yeah, this is out of a World Bank report looking at wrong. Well, then we'll have to check into that and have a debate yeah, no, it's, over it's, a cup of tea, Nat. No way. Uh, anyway, uh, Nick? No, I'm good. Nothing? Okay, there was a Palestinian session right before this. Uh, question, why aren't we drilling the Palestinian gas and bringing it ashore? Now, that's a question. Anyone want to touch that one? The politics, of course. Uh, it's interesting how some of those gas fields, the border of the gas fields are kind of defined by the borders of the countries. And the borders of the countries are defined by whom? I don't even have to say it. Might makes right. I don't really have to repeat that too often. Uh, where is China 
in the energy system of the Middle East. Its investments, its demand, its incursion into the region. China is interested in the Middle East for a business. The Russians are interested in the Middle East to cause trouble. And we're interested in the Middle East because we don't know what the hell we're doing. All right, anyone want to answer that? <laughs> Nick, no? China? I mean, I, thi I think you're spot on. I think they have a lot of investment opportunities, uh, and they want to have a grapple on energy investments, not just in the Middle East, but in Africa, in Latin America, and they're going to use their power of investment uh, to grapple as much as they can. Um, I don't know what that ultimately looks like uh, with foreign ownership investments, uh, but uh, given the way they heavily subsidize their energy uh, within China, um, you know, I think they could potentially be a, a pretty big global supplier and a global investor uh, if open markets allow them to be. Well, uh, the, the focus on open markets is clearly one of the important themes of this session, and uh, certainly the uh, many countries in the Middle East are uh, getting with the program on that, understanding that the subsidies actually cost them more in natural resources by not pricing things properly. Uh, but also there's that uh, tension in the Middle East. If you take the subsidies off, the streets might get rather explosive. Uh, however, the, the subsidies have been taken off in Egypt and the streets have not been explosive. So there are probably other factors in there uh, and uh, things have happened uh, differently than when the IMF asked that to happen in 1977 and the place just blew up. So why don't we just have a wrap-up comments from each and we can start with Steve. Well, I just wanted to reemphasize the, the point I made. I think all the presentations uh, today emphasize the uh, importance of sticking to this all of the above approach on energy and energy security. And, and the important thing is it's what we do, what we did 10, 20 years ago that shapes the energy world we're dealing with today. And so we have to take the moment and try to kind of make the change so 5, 10, 15 years, the situation would not necessarily be a lot better, but it better, better than it otherwise would be, particularly if we face a crisis at the time. So there's never a moment to step back, and the worst time to work on energy security is during a crisis. It's better when you're not in the midst of a crisis. Thank you. I'd like to emphasize that point uh, that Steve just made. I, I don't think it's, it's possible to, to understate the uh, importance of both recognizing the role of energy as this planet uh, uh, struggles to a path for greater stability and opportunity for the future, but recognizing how important it is that it involve and be recognized as an interdependent problem and an interdependent uh, issue. We, we need long-term planning, long-term commitment, long-term investment, and that's very, very tough for people who worship at the Church of Re-Election. Uh, Nat? I don't really add. You have nothing to add to that. Nick? Yeah, I'll just say, you, you mentioned, you know, you don't know until you know, and that's true except for politicians. They think they know all the time, and that's what has given us a lot of bad energy policy in the name of 
uh, ending depe dependence on foreign oil, uh, of shifting to renewables, of uh, getting five million electric vehicles on the road. It gave us the renewable fuel standard. Uh, so it's important to look at trends to guide public policy. Uh, it's important to plan for the future, but there's better ways to do that than trying to outsmart the market with mandates and subsidies and regulations. And I think that's what we're going to be encouraging uh, as we move forward with U.S. energy policy. All right, I suppose I have some time for a wrap-up. Uh, there was a famous physicist who said the following, uh, the way of thinking that got you into the problems you're in right now will not help you in getting yourself out of them. In the Arab world, in the Middle East, people have to start thinking differently, politically, economically, energetically. And if they don't, there will be a repeat cycle of what we have been seeing for the last 60 years. Energy is going to be a big part of that new thinking. And it's going to help with diversification in the society and the polity as well. Because if there's one thing that concentrates power, it's concentrated resources. Democratize energy, move forward, increase the education of your people, increase the human capital, and watch this place take off. Thank you.